you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be reading Galatians 3, starting in verse 26. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, Galatians uh, is about three quarters of the way through. If you open your book Bible to the middle, you'll typically fall on Psalms. And then if you go to the right, about 20 books or so, you'll run into four little epistles. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Gibson eats potato chips is the way I learned that. And uh, that's after the two letters to the Corinthians. Uh, and so I hope you'll make your way to Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week with Galatians 3.26 into chapter 4, verse 7. All right, let's read together. Galatians 3.26 <clears throat> For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Just pause here. In this particular culture, a son would have been treated in the same way as a slave in the household uh, up until a period of time. He would have been, um, though the heir of all things, he would have been treated no differently until he reached adulthood, at which time uh, his rights would be uh, given to him as the heir. So Paul is saying that while we were under the law, we were like a child who had not transferred into that adulthood stage. We were under guardians and managers until the time of Christ. Verse 3, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. When he says when we were children, he meant before we came to Christ. We operated under the elementary principles of the world. Uh, reacting to feelings, reacting to temptation, reacting in sin. Uh, in all those ways, we were enslaved to sin, to the elementary principles of the world. Verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its sufficiency. We thank you that today uh, we, uh, you have sovereignly chosen for us to be in this passage, even as our Sunday school class talked about our identity in Christ, uh, and we heard the similar passages referred to in baptism, and everything is lining up today in such a way that only you could have orchestrated, that you want us to walk in our identity as a new, as a Christ follower and a new creation. We pray that we would understand who you say we are and that we would walk in our identity as adopted sons of God. Would you make it so and help us to understand it today? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week I told you that when I, I come up here, I have a, a number of swing thoughts. You know, when I go to a tee box and I'm playing golf, I step up to the tee box and I have 10 or 12 swing thoughts, do this and hold the club this way and do come at this angle. And, all, and I typically shank the ball sideways. But, but when I come up here, I have a number of things. And, and this morning, Cherie, uh, just in our conversation around 8 o'clock this morning um, at the office, um, gave me another swing thought that was so helpful and, and, and helped me understand uh, really where we are. I told her, I'm, I'm still trying to tie this sermon together and it doesn't feel like it's really all there and there are some things that I'm not quite there. And she said, well, a good verse that I've been wrestling with was when uh, Jesus told the disciples, you need to feed these thousands of people. And and they said, all we have are five loaves and two fishes. And, uh, and, and this sort of um, meager offering to Jesus he said, it's enough. And well, I'm able to take what little you offer and multiply it. And, and I just confess this morning that me trying to preach through this passage, um, I'm bringing to the table uh, a couple of fish and a couple of loaves. It's not very much, but my prayer is that God would um, apply it as needed to your heart so that you may walk in identity. I just don't feel like I could cover your full identity in Christ well enough. Any effort that I give, it's not going to be enough. And so you bear with me and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you in ways that uh, may not come directly through me. Where are we in context? Paul has basically demonstrated the futility of walking in your flesh. He has demonstrated that you cannot please God by doing good works, by moralism, by just believing in God and doing your best. Uh, you can't do that, uh, and so it's futile for you to try to please God by obeying the law at the expense of faith alone in Christ Jesus. He said over and over again that to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus Christ, and don't add to the law that faith alone. That will not please God. It's not a gospel at all. So after demonstrating that, trying to please God by adding obedience at the expense of faith alone, now Paul is going to state the benefits of those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And we just read it. He says, you're sons of God through faith. He says that you will put on Christ. He says that you are united in Christ across all socioeconomic, racial, uh, language barriers. All those things disappear in Christ. He says that you are now an heir of the promise to Abraham. Uh, he says that you are redeemed. He says that you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that you're adopted, and that you have this new relational identity with God the Father, who is described as Abba Father. Where we understand that when we came to faith in Christ, justification is the theological term that means God declared you righteous. 
God declared that you were not going to be held responsible for the punishment of the sin that you deserved. Well, that's good and all, but the added blessing of being adopted, giving us a new relational identity with the Father, is the same as a judge looking at you in a court of law in which you are demonstrated to be guilty, and the judge declares you not guilty. That's the idea of justification. But then the understanding of adoption is now the judge says, I want you to come home with me and to be a part of my family and to have my identity upon you. And it's the lasting um, addition to the family of God through adoption. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Why would the Galatians exchange the gospel of grace that brings life for a system of works and legalism that brings death? He's shown that for three chapters, that the law brings death and faith brings life. So he shows us this identity in Christ. A few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I read this book. Uh, I honestly can't remember the name of it. Um, it was about a man who grew up in Baltimore, and um, a few blocks away from him was uh, another black man who also had the same first name, middle name, and last name. Uh, and these two Bryans grew up within really blocks of each other. And they would go different places, and, and they looked similar, so that when people saw them, they mistake their identity. They mistook their identity. They would see one guy and they would, um, they would uh, ask him about his father and he would say, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not my dad's name. And so the community was confused uh, as they would kind of go through this area of Baltimore. Um, they lived in two completely different worlds though. And one was from a solid family. Um, one was from a broken home. Throughout their life, they were presented with similar opportunities, similar situations, similar educational opportunities. One chose one path and one chose another. Despite their peer groups and their opportunities, one grew up to be a solid and successful citizen, and the other one in and out of prison for violent crimes. They never knew each other until their mid-50s when Brian interviewed the other Brian in prison for this book. And the book describes this unusual tension, this unusual line between two identities. Same name, looking similar, same area, even same neighborhood, um, and yet they both chose two radically different paths. And the author does a good job of describing how he could have easily made the same choices that the other Brian made in walking in a, a wrong identity, walking in a way that didn't describe who he was or how he was raised. I think in, in some way, Paul wants them to understand their identity in Christ. Because like those two Brians, don't we often struggle with the voices of critics or with the voices of others? with the voices of the enemy, the accuser, or even often with our own self-talk, saying things like you're a failure, or God could never forgive you for that, or look at the way you live. Aren't you such an incredible example to everyone else? 
or that that particular sin won't be forgiven, or you've really blown it this time, or God will reject you. All of those thoughts belittle our true identity in Christ. And the enemy would have you dwell there. Right? He wants to have free space in your mind at all times to remind you of all the things that you were. But in Christ Jesus, you can say, that may be who I was, but that's not who I am in Christ. And Paul wants you to understand your identity in Christ and to walk in your new identity in Christ and to pre preach truth to yourself, which combats all of those lies and accusations and self-talk. So let's get back into the text and we'll work through verse 26 through chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, and let's, let's start here in 326. Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now he says you are all sons of God. This is a common interpretive issue when we're reading the Bible, is all of us face this issue of, do we smooth this out and include this to mean daughters? And do we smooth this out and just kind of make it children like the KJV does? And in some places, we understand that the masculine use in Scripture has a broad application. When we talk about humanity, we don't make the distinction between male and female. We're talking about all humanity. The Bible often uses uh, masculine gender to apply to all. But there are some places when it's very specific in its gender usage. And it would be tempting for us to insert the word and daughters. You are all sons and daughters of God. Or to just replace it. And to make it children, in Greek I think that's technon, um, or to, to smooth it out to make it sort of gender friendly. But I want you to hear the distinction here really clear. The word is huioi, it's the plural form of the word huios, which literally means son, male descendant, male children, and male descendants. You say, why does this matter? Why do you take the time to uh, demonstrate some sort of patriarchal, man-centered viewpoint here? Why does this matter? Why are you pointing this out? Well, to smooth this out or to change the Greek word is to dull the meaning. For example, if you make it daughter, you are all daughters of God through faith. Then... You dull the meaning. You lose the idea of the male descendant in the culture that Paul was writing. And let me tell you why that's important. Because if you make it daughter, then they understood that a daughter didn't get an inheritance. A daughter didn't get the identity. A daughter didn't get the name. A daughter didn't get the father's um, prestige or his possessions or his the daughter wasn't of didn't have full access to the identity uh, or to the blessings of being that son this was true in the greek world this was true in the roman world and this was true to some degree in the hebrew world with the exception of this in the jewish world the hebrew world the firstborn son received all of those blessings. And so if you try to smooth this out and you try to change 
the intended language that the Holy Spirit wrote Scripture, and you try to make it say sons and daughters of God through faith, then you mean that you are shortchanging yourself of the full blessing of being a son of God. So wait, Gibson, does that mean that women in Christ don't get the blessing? Well, no. God is not excluding women at all. What he's saying is, look again at the language. You are all. What does all mean? All means all, right? All means men and women in Christ. You are now equated. You jump the line from a second class person, which in that culture would have been the daughter or the child. You jump that line and you become the, the primary heir, the son. You see how that's important? Women and men in Christ are all in that firstborn position, receiving the inheritance and the blessing and the heir and the, all that comes with being into the family of God through faith. Is that clear? All right, let's move on. Verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So Paul's going to give us two more images that help them see how their identity has completely changed. He talks about baptism, uh, which we saw a, a really beautiful demonstration here this morning. Did you appreciate Laura and Isla and their testimony? Just give them a hand, how hard it is to come up front. Um, I told Laura I need a copy of that. It was so beautifully written, and, uh, and I was just fighting back emotion as I um, had knew I'd spent time with Isla three years ago, and then and as I interviewed her last week, just the joy that it gave me to hear her be able to articulate, I knew that I needed Jesus for the forgiveness of sins was just uh, too much for me. But, but Paul gives this understanding of baptism, baptism showing us that believers have gone down into death, dying to their old ways. Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ It's no longer I who live But now Jesus Christ lives in me The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God Our identity changes Our old self is dead To the world, to sin To temptation, to the elementary Principles of the world We are new in Christ And when I raise somebody up out of the water They're raised to walk in a new life Not to go back to their old ways. They say, will we, will we occasionally stumble and fall? Yes, we will stumble. 1 John 1.9 says that if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But the same Bible that allows for those um, lapses in our walk also says that those who practice sin, those who are making it their habitual discipline to continue to persist in sin, have not embraced their new walk in Christ, the crucified life. That's the baptism. Then he gives this other image to put on Christ. To put on Christ gives this image of changing clothes. You ever put on an outfit and I have this, I don't know if you have this problem, but I'll put on an outfit that I think in my mind, uh, uh, that'll look fine. And then I'll put it on. I'll say, okay, that was for 25 pounds ago. That's not for where I currently am. That's for 25 pounds ago. And I'll just, I'll put that away uh, for that day when I get back in shape and right, everything fits better. And, and I have now I've gotten to a point where I have um, the, the clothes for this weight class in this drawer and the clothes for that weight class and the clothes, you know, in a, in storage where they're completely um, out of out of date and you wouldn't want me to wear those 
But there are times, if you, how many of you just put on an outfit and you say, oh, I don't like that, I don't like that at all, and, and, and maybe some of you should say that, right? Maybe you should take a look at your color coordination and uh, uh, ask your wife or, or um, a female, they can often tell you, that's not going to work, honey, that's not going to work. Um, but when you change clothes, when you change your look, it gives you a new look, it gives you a new identity. And that simple illustration, when he says to put on Christ, means that we put off the old self. We put away the things that were not of Christ, and we put on Christ. It's this principle of displacement, this think on these things kind of idea from Philippians, where Paul says, think on true things, and think on noble things. And that, when you saturate your mind with Scripture, it has this idea of displacement. If I were to drop uh, uh, Darren's nice guitar into the baptistry, that would displace the amount of area of that guitar from the water in there, and it would push that water aside. Uh, in that same way, when you insert Scripture, you displace those uh, false thoughts and identities. So he's saying to put on Christ taking on that new life and purpose through being spiritually united to Christ. Look at verse 28. This is a beautiful realization of your new identity in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Our new identity in Christ is enough to shatter all of those socioeconomic, racial, linguistic, cultural barriers that our world would magnify. Do you feel the tension today? I think you would have to live under a rock or in a cave to not feel the racial and social and economic pressures that the world would draw up all these lines that would divide us. And yet in Christ, he picks two of the major classes that were pertinent and says there is no Jew or Greek. That would have been the most relevant dividing line for all of those people who were in a room together in the Galatian region worshiping together. There would have been a, a clear divide socially and culturally. But he says that there is no Jew or Greek. That there is no slave or or free person, that in Christ you are all on the same level. Isn't that beautiful? That our, the gospel of Jesus Christ allows us to deal with the sin issue that creates those issues of division, and in Christ we have unity. In Genesis 11, the world was unified and it spoke one language. You know the story. God came down to see what they were doing. They were building a tower that they may reach up to heaven. And there in that place at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, God scrambled their language center and, and separated them into these uh, groups. And they spread out across the world. But what we see in the gospel, uh, particularly in Acts chapter 2, is of the redeemed people... In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, um, all the disciples were together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. It says, Divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews and devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from... He goes on and on. Cretans, Arabians, Jews, proselytes. We all hear them speaking in our own tongues the mighty works of God. You see the beauty of that? He just listed off a half a dozen regions where there were different colors, different languages, different cultures, different barriers, all the things that would divide them. He said they all came together at Pentecost and in one language they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They heard the glory of God. And so what divided them because of sin in Genesis 11, the redeemed have together across all those boundary lines, unity. So in Christ, we can repent of all racist ideologies across the board. The Bible does not describe races. It describes the human race. And in Christ, all those lines are, are, are erased. We can be one in Christ. And I've experienced this blessing as I've served the Lord in missions over the last 30 years. Today is my 30th spiritual anniversary. It was 30 years ago today that I came to faith in Christ. And over the past 30 years, I've been able to go to five different continents to serve the Lord and a dozen or more different countries. And everywhere I go, regardless of language, regardless of culture, regard, regardless of color, regardless of age, when I meet somebody who is in Christ, we have an instant bond that is unbreakable in Christ that allows us to see beyond what divides us. I'll never forget being in Rome, playing volleyball with a, a, a refugee from Iran. And, and we were, I would set him, uh, and he would spike it, and then uh, we would spike it in the face of an Afghanistan guy across the... And then after a while, we were all from all these different places around the Middle East in 2001 or 2002, um, right when all the Gulf War and all the things were heating up there. At some point, we were in a huddle after winning a, a point, and we just looked around the, the circle and thought, we're supposed to hate each other. According to the world, I, we're not, I'm not supposed to be playing volleyball. A white guy from Oklahoma, and a, an Iranian guy, and an Afghanistan guy, and an Iraqi, and, and all these refugees, we came together and experienced a unity that could only be defined by the gospel. In every continent that I've worshipped in, the gospel breaks down those racial barriers. For that reason alone, I encourage every person to go and experience other cultures. To get out of an American-centered Christianity. To experience the gospel on multiple continents and multiple nations. To see how believers worship around the world. And that is an antidote to sinful racism. Let's move on to verse 29. 
all the way through chapter 4, verse 3. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so the point that he's making is that when you were under the law, you were a slave, not free. But now that you're in Christ, now that you've given your life to Christ, then you transition into the heir, into the one who receives the promise by faith in Christ. Verse 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption. Adoption as sons. Verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. So if you're taking notes, your identity includes being redeemed. Verse 5, your identity includes being an heir. Verse 29 through verse 3, your identity includes the breaking of these social, cultural, economic, racial barriers. Your identity includes walking in newness in Christ as you put on Christ. We're going to get to adoption in a little while, and I'm, I'm glad that, that Charles and Kirsten made it home. We're going to have an interview with Charles and Kirsten to talk about adoption uh, here in a few minutes. Uh, and they're going to help us understand that more. But, but I want to stop here because part of your identity is that God has sent His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts. Your identity is wrapped up in the fact that God dwells within you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And if you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and if you're living the Spirit-filled, Spirit-controlled life, you will look like and be transforming into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the Spirit of His Son, and it actually changes us. We become different. Where before we might have struggled with severe, paralyzing anxiety and worry, now, through Christ and the Spirit He which indwells us, we have a spirit of peace with God. A spirit of peace with God. We have a spirit not of anger or hatred or vengeful, petty spitefulness, but now we walk in a spirit of love, especially toward our enemies. We have within the Spirit, the Holy Spirit within us, not a spirit of cruelty, but a spirit of kindness. If someone is repeatedly cruel to you, you can be sure that they are not indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. We have a spirit of joy. Joy is not happiness or sadness or other emotions that are so dependent on our circumstances. Think about your emotional state. You hear the word hangry, right? You get hangry. When you're too hungry, you get angry, uh, and that changes your emotions. Or if you don't get enough sleep, or if you're, if you're, my high school football coach used to say, my aching back, Largenton. And I don't know if I gave him an aching back or if his back was just aching, but, but he was awfully mad at me, and he would say my aching back all the time. But our emotions can be based on our circumstances. 
but not joy. The spirit of joy is a constant state of deep contentment about your position in Christ. Soul happiness at the realization of your present and future reality of being in the, in the family of God. He gives us a spirit of goodness, not wickedness, not evil, not a contribution to darkness and corruption. He gives us a spirit of faithfulness, a spirit of self-control, not a chaotic, out-of-control living, a spirit of gentleness, and a spirit of patience as we wait for our greater eternal reward. He doesn't give us a spirit of instant gratification, but patience depicts future satisfaction under current turmoil. These qualities that the Spirit produces in us fundamentally change us from the deepest part of ourselves. You can't manufacture this. You can't grit your teeth and be more patient or be more loving or be filled with love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Well, let's look here at the final two, a uh, few verses. Four, verse five says that so we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I read this great book this week uh, by David Platt. And he describes a couple of things that are difficult when it comes to adoption. He says, oftentimes, if they've adopted a child from Asia and another one um, from uh, uh, Europe, um, he says, people can tell that my daughter and one of my sons have been adopted. And when we share their stories, people say, oh, that's so nice. Uh, now, do you also have children of your own? He says, that's phrase number one, never to say to an adoptive parent. He says, I want to say to them, come in here real close. <laughs> I have a secret. They are all ours. He says, other questions reveal a similar view of adoption. Some people wonder if we even care about our children's heritage. And that heritage, that very question implies that their heritage is thousands of miles away. But the reality is this, that their heritage is here with us. It doesn't mean that Kazakhstan or China, the countries we adopted them from, are discounted altogether, or that a child who has lived in another country shouldn't have some appreciation for that country. But my son and daughter are Platts. They're not partly Platts, but fully Platts. With all the heritage that a Platt has, they are in our family in the same way as our other two sons. Another comment we often hear is, I just don't know that if I could love a child in that same way. He says, there you go, using that distinction again, and I guarantee you that the affection that my wife and I have for the children that we have adopted is absolutely no different from our affection for the other children that we've had naturally. They are all our children. All these phrases, myths, and misconceptions about adoption are not just annoyances, and they are that to parents who have been through the adoption process. They're symptoms of something deeper. They show just how little we understand what it means to be part of God's family. Even our infatuation with the biological and adopted labels and the distinction between the two shows our tendency to qualify children into categories with a gospel 
We'll struggle with this gospel that tells the story of a spiritual transracial adoption that changes the lives of each of us for all eternity. We are adopted into the family of God, and the implications of this are huge for understanding and living out our Christianity. J.I. Packer said this, that adoption is one of the greatest markers of our identity in Christ. And he says it this way. He says, there is a higher blessing than even that of justification. He says, justification makes us right before God the Father, the judge. But in adoption, we are loved by God the Father. In justification, the picture is legal. We stand before a judge who makes a pronouncement. But in adoption, the judge not only declares you not guilty, but he also gets up off the bench, comes down to where you are, takes your chains off of you and says, come home with me, my son. Packer says to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to simultaneously be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater thing. <clears throat> One more story from Platt. He says that his son, his young son, went through a why phase. You ever had kids that, why daddy? Why daddy? Why daddy? And the next question is always why? favorite question is why and they said when he told him i loved him he said why he said because you're my son and of course he said why he said how do i answer that out of all the children in all the world why is he my son he said i started thinking about all the factors that had that had to come together from the timing to the region to the agency to the finances to the qualifications to the home studies to the ups to the downs to the long period of waiting when my the days when my wife and I wondered if we were ever able to do this he said as I felt all this the tears welled up my son had no idea none of this was going on he's probably sorry that he asked why but I finally looked at this precious little boy and I said because we wanted you buddy and we came, to, we came to get you. That's why you're my son. And in a much greater way, you and I have a God who says, I love you. And when we ask why God, he says, because you're my son, but why? Because I wanted you, he says, and I came to get you. Praise God that he sent his son so that we might receive the position as sons. What happens when you understand your identity in Christ and you begin to walk in it? Let me close with this illustration. I read about this thing called a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's this sociological term used to describe a prediction that often causes itself to become true. When someone's expectations are set in such a way, it leads them to behave in different ways. Let me just give you a brief example. When I was in third grade, I left one elementary school and went to another. And when I got to fourth grade, back in the 80s, this is what they did. They walked into a room and the teacher would say, how many of you were a part of the gifted and talented program at your previous school? Do you remember the gifted and talented program? How shameful is that? So just three hands go up and the rest of us are not gifted and not talented. <laughs> You know, for years they would walk in the room and the teacher would say, gifted and talented, right? You leave at, at one o'clock and you go to a special room where you learn higher mathematics. I don't know what they learned. I never was in it, right? <laughs> ever. If you've ever heard me talk about my 
educational background. So here was my chance in fourth grade, new school. How many of you were a part of the gifted and talented program last year at your previous school? And in this one moment, I knew I had an option. <laughs> Raise my hand and take a new direction or keep my hand down and acknowledge the truth that I had never been selected for anything remotely close to gifted and talented. So little Gibson just proudly <laughs> raised my hand and uh, they didn't question it. And so three times a week for two hours a day, I was marched off down the hallway with the other smart kids. And uh, I don't know what happened. After a month or so, I wasn't invited back and I wasn't known <laughs> when the meetings were. But I can tell you this. <laughs> for about a month, I believed something about myself. <laughs> that I was gifted and talented, and so I operated differently, right? Uh, it changed the way I thought about myself until they found me out. But, but for a while there, uh, I walked in a different way. <laughs> and so I use that dumb illustration to tell you that something happens, something amazing happens when you realize your new identity in Christ. Something terrible happens when you listen to the one who would diminish your identity in Christ or the one who would deceive you about who you are. When you go through situations that treat you as less than human because of your skin color or because of your economic status, in Christ, there are so many beautiful things that change the way who we are affects us, but none more than the Spirit who allows us to say that God the Judge is our Abba Father. What do you think would be different in your life if you walked in your true identity as a son and daughter? Father, would you give us the grace and strength to walk in such a way that we understand who we are in Christ Jesus? Not only do we understand it, but that we proudly walk in it as a child of God, as a son of God, as a daughter of God, as one upon whom your favor rests because of what we have done with Jesus Christ. Not having a righteousness of our own, but having a righteousness that comes from being united with you through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, and what he accomplished for us on the cross. Would you let it be so? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.